glad to have you in our continuing study through the book of Habakkuk. Be finding that. That's not easy to find. Not easy to say either. Uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, or it depends on who's saying it. So, uh, but be finding that. We started a, a journey last week into the difficulty of understanding or maybe misunderstanding God. You think you understand Him, that you figured it out. And then all of a sudden, a curveball comes, things go out of control, or things don't happen the way you thought they were going to happen because it's the right order and so forth. And then you misunderstand God. And we go from, I question God, to I doubt. And that's literally where we're going to be today. in dealing with the fact that sometimes the answers that God gives us, or doesn't give us, the silence that we get from God at times is so difficult complex and so almost i want to say it disheartening that sometimes you go god are you are you still in control here who's in control what are you doing do you know what you're doing here and so these are questions that i think that we go through and we and we almost want to just throw in the towel and even give up on god and i just want to affirm asking questions is not an offense to god Okay? Asking questions is not supposed to be an offensive thing. Just as parents, whenever you're parenting kids and the kids come up and say, hey, can I borrow the car keys? What do you ask? You ask, where are you going? Or why do you need my car keys and why not your car keys? And who's going to be with you? Or all kinds of manner of questions that we might ask along those lines. Uh, So those questions are okay. It's okay to ask questions because you ask the right questions, they make you wiser, okay? And you want to get wiser. So good questions, you ask those and you become wiser. But also, even in the business world, uh, asking good questions is a part of success, the center for creative uh, uh, leadership did a survey of 191 successful executives, and they found a common denominator, common trait among them, and that was that they created environments where people could ask questions. Interesting. Creating environments to people ask questions actually generated success. So actually asking good questions makes us better, makes us wiser, makes us better people, better business people, better teachers, better parents, better people all the way around. Uh, Even maybe better followers of Christ. But here's another one. And you think about marriage. Marriage is not just facts. The interchange of when are you coming home? Well, what's for dinner? Well, who's got the kids? Those, if that's the level of interaction that you have in your marriage, please do something about that. There are deeper conversations, deeper dives that you need to go into. You need to be able to ask heart-level questions. You need to be able to struggle with things together and not feel accused that if somebody's asking a question about something, that it always means you're the bad guy. And so even if the other person means you're the bad guy, please be open to questions. It brings us closer. Good questions bring us closer. I talked about it last week that we need to ask better questions if we want better answers. Sometimes the problem is not with the answer. Sometimes the problem is with the question. And so ask and lean in on the questions that you're asking. In fact, I've encouraged you, and we've given out journals, and there's a few up here on the stage still. If you want to grab some, one or two or whatever on the way out, or even during our response time, you're invited. This is That will be your time to, 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 to participate in this time. To grab one of these and begin to ask God questions. I love it that last week, 
handed these out. Several took the 21-day challenge. If you weren't here last week, here's 21-day challenge. That you would journal and ask God questions and listen for God to answer your questions. Awesome story came last Sunday. Somebody said, I wrote down my question during during the worship gathering. And before I went to bed that night, the big question I had for God, God answered it. And so it's amazing how whenever we create an environment that God can answer, that God can talk in, that he's really ready to talk. He's really ready to do some work. But sometimes we don't have time for God or we don't create space. And so we're trying to do that. Asking questions is not a bad thing. It makes us wiser, makes us better, makes us closer, brings us closer together. In fact, Jesus was the penultimate question asker. He asked 307 questions in the four Gospels alone. Think about that. Out of four Gospels, he asked 307 questions. It's okay to ask questions. It makes us better. It makes us wiser. It, makes us, it brings us closer together. Out, now, what's interesting are the number of questions that were asked of Jesus. Now, this is a very interesting thing. Of the questions that were asked of Jesus... 183 questions were asked of Jesus. Jesus only answered them, three of them, directly. Most of the time, when you would ask Jesus a question, the way he would answer your question was by asking you a question. Think about that. Questions make us better, wiser. They also draw us closer together. So the question game is not a bad thing. Questions are your friend, they're good questions, and they lead us towards truth, intimacy, they bring us towards reality. And what we're looking at today, or what we looked at last week, this week, and next week, is the prayer journal, prayer journal of Habakkuk, the prophet. And as we look at that, there are three times that he records his prayers in there. And in those prayers, we begin to unravel, again, to unpack, again, How a good prophet, a good man of God, is asking a great and awesome God some difficult questions. And so I just want to kind of lower the the, the wall, the fence, the the intimidation, or, or the sense of even, I'm disrespecting God if I ask Him why. Or I'm disrespecting God if I ask Him what. You're not at all. In fact, He encourages that intimate dialogue between the two. Now, He will answer your question. But as I said last week, you may not always like the answer, but he'll answer your questions. He'll answer your prayers. So just get ready for that and be ready to be in that deeper relationship with him. So again, the context, I'm not going to go into all the context of what we're going on here, but Habakkuk, we don't really exactly are 100% on the date timeline of him, but just to kind of give us a big, big overview, most people I read from believe that he was the king under a guy named Jehoiakim, okay? He was the son of the the bottom king there, Josiah. Josiah was the rocking king. Man, he was the best king. He was a king from the time he was eight. For 31 years he ruled. 31. He brought revival to the land. He cleaned the paganism out of the temple. He, he really restored a fear of God and a respect for God. He brought the Passover back. It was a beautiful revival in the land. And we have to believe that probably Habakkuk was born under Josiah's reign, was actually uh, maybe even t- uh, trained in the, 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 the synagogue, or excuse me, in the temple courts while Josiah was king. So it was a great time of upswing in the country. However, that changed almost immediately. When Jehoiakim becomes the king, he does, as it says in 2 Chronicles, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. 
How would you like that to be the epitaph of your life? And that's truly about all we know about Jehoiakim. That he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So he had a relationship with God, but he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So what a waste of a life. And the very first prayer, I give you all this history because you've got to get the context of it. Because the very first prayer that we studied last week is under, probably during the time of Jehoiakim. And he's literally, he's crying out to God, God, Judah is falling apart, your people. They are violent, they're evil, they're broken, and you put up with this? And then God answers his prayer. And again, he got a prayer answered that he did not want to hear because what happens next is we go on a little bit further and Zedekiah becomes the king. Now, Zedekiah becomes the king and you would think that the people of God after, because Zedekiah was the puppet king of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He was just a little vassal king, a puppet king under him and he kind of ruled the roost. But this is what was said of the people. You would have think they would have got their act together, right? He did not humble himself. He stiffened his neck. This is Zedekiah. He stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. When you have a king or a ruler or a president or a congressman or or a mayor or you have anybody, a leader, that has a position like that with God, beware. That's exactly who Zedekiah was, and he was non-repentant. In fact, the entire people during that time, under Zephaniah, Nahum, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, they all did this to the prophets of God. They took the remote control and they put mute. We're not listening. And the way they did that is like this in Second Chronicles chapter 36. He says, And they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets. No thank you, we're not listening to you. And again, the country just tanks. First of all, Judah's tanking. Babylon comes in, takes over. Zedekiah becomes the puppet king. All of a sudden, they're tanking even further. Nebuchadnezzar is now actually the true ruler of the land. And now we get to the second prayer. We believe that there's this great span of time between these two prayers. And there's this second prayer that comes into play here. So open your Bible to uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 again. And... (laughs) Literally, the most succinct way I can say it is it was bad under Judah, but it was horrible under Babylon. So it goes from bad to worse. And the way F.F. Bruce, one of the leading scholars of our time, said it like this. He said, the cure was worse than the disease. Because the cure was Babylon. If Jehoiakim chastised the people with whips, the Chaldeans chastising them with scorpions. That's how bad it was. So you can just imagine as Habakkuk prays this prayer, God, would you do something with Judah? And God said, okay, since Babylon. God, would you not do that with Judah? Because that's me now. I don't want that answer if that's the answer you're going to give. Well, see, that's where God's sovereign and we're not. That's why he's God and we're not. He's going to know what we need at the hour we need it, and he's going to answer it according to his will. But what it does, here's what it does, here's the reality, is it creates great pain in our life. It creates this tension with God. It creates this part where you, you actually become angry with God, if you're really honest. And again, I'm going to say there are no easy questions. There are only hard answers in this series of messages. Because some of you have been like Habakkuk. 
Prayer number one, he's perplexed by God. Prayer number two, he's frustrated with God. God, why? God, what are you thinking? God, are you still in control? Do you know what you're doing? So here's what I want us to do, is I want to enter into the prayer journals of Habakkuk. Again, dive in, swim around, get in the intimate journals of, this, uh, 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 of him, and let us understand, how do we manage the pain through prayer? Not through pills, through prayer, all right? Pain management through prayer. How do we do that? Number one, we anchor to who God is. We anchor to who God is. That means you're going to have to understand who God is. But that's exactly what uh, what Habakkuk does when he opens his prayer, beginning in verse 12. Look at verse 12, verse 13. This is when he launches into his prayer, and he talks about who God is. He says, are you not from everlasting? Are you not the everlasting God, the immortal God? Oh, Lord, that's a title. My God, my Holy One. In that verse alone, there's at least three to four, depends on how you count them, titles that he gives God. He is everlasting. He is Lord. He is his God. He is holy. We shall not die. Now notice this next statement. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them. Who's them? Chaldeans, the Babylonians. You've ordained the Babylonians as judgment. Basically, God, you are sovereign. And you chose the bad guys to get the good guys. Why did you do that, God? You, oh, rock, another name or definition he gives for God, have established them, the Chaldeans, for reproof. You are pure in your eyes than to see evil and cannot look at the wrong. Here's the big question. Why? Why? Why do you idly look at traitors? So he's sitting here going through and he's talking about who God is. He's like, God, you're everlasting. God, you're Lord. God, you're my God. God, you're holy. God, you're, you're pure to look at this. God, you're my rock. God, you're the ones who organize this. You're the sovereign God, big question mark. It's like, God, this doesn't make sense. Everything I learned about you in the synagogue school, everything I learned about you at, at, at the temple, everything that my parents taught me about you, Everything that Josiah spoke of you as the ruler of our land is is like my theology is over here, but my reality is way over here. And I'm not seeing how these two things are going to come together. In that moment, what are you going to do when your theology is not lining up with your reality? When things are not measuring up? Well, here's what will happen. You will either doubt or you will literally go to unbelief. Because in that moment, you're like going, okay, this is not measuring up, this is not lining up. And some people will literally walk away from God saying, if that is the God of this universe, if God's going to give cancer to that person, if God's going to let that uh, ungodly person succeed and me fail, if, you know, fill in the blank. Again, every, every scenario is out there, uh, is in this room today. If God's going to, my parents aren't going to love me and they're going to put me up for adoption, or you, know, you fill in the blanks, fill in the blanks. There's so many different disillusioning elements of this world. If God's going to do that, I don't want to have anything to do with him. Warren Wiersbe said it well, the difference between doubt and unbelief. 
The doubter questions God and may even debate with God. But the doubter doesn't abandon God. It's a big thing. But unbelief is rebellion against God, a refusal to accept what He says and does. Unbelief is an act of the will, while doubt is born out of a troubled mind and a broken heart. And there's some of you in this room, and just be really, I'm just, I wish I could just look at each one of you in the face. Some of you, you're living with a troubled mind and a broken heart. And you're like, man, I don't want to enter into unbelief. I don't want to go there, but I'm there. I'm almost there. Think about Martha. She had, she had one of these moments. When Martha was, was in John chapter 11, you read it for yourself. In John chapter 11, she's like, hey, hey, Jesus, your friend Lazarus, he's dying. What does Jesus do? He does what Jesus always does. He doesn't answer it quickly. He creates this space, this tension. He waits days and Lazarus is dead. By the time he's get there, he's been dead for four days. He's rolled up in the tomb. He's mummified. He, he's gone. He's forever gone. And the very first words out of Martha's mouth when she walks up to Jesus, you know what they were? She said this. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, I don't understand, God. You could have been here. You could have fixed this. All along, you remember what had happened already in the Gospels? Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. The widow Nan experienced a resurrection in her family. There's already been resurrections. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth were this. I am the resurrection and the life. It wasn't her reality, but it was her theology. And what Jesus was trying to do was get those two in line. Sometimes this pulling and pulling against the two creates tremendous tension and we struggle. So the best thing you can do is anchor yourself back to who God is. He is everlasting. He is holy. He is Lord. He is God. I don't understand why, if you're all those things, God, why you're letting these things happen. But, hey, you are my rock. I will make it through this. You you did ordain these things. God, I don't understand why you ordain these things to happen. Okay, God. You see what I'm saying? This this pull, this this push, it's this 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 it's this unraveling that can happen. So what we've got to do is we've got to understand who God is in the midst of our circumstances. Who is God in the midst of your life? You know there are 955 different names for God in the scripture. Names, traits, we, the, the community scripts will have actually a list, not an exhaustive list, but a list of many of those names. 955 names, traits, character qualities of God. You can't summarize God up in almost less than a thousand words. There's that many descriptors for him. See what we do. When, when, we, when you realize the size of your God, this is a life principle. When you realize the size of your God, it changes the size of the problem. Let me say it to you again because I don't think you heard that part. When you realize the size of your God, it changes the size of your problem. Thank you. Somebody heard that. It is worthy of hearing it again, please. Let's say it with me. When you realize the size of your God, it changes the size of your problem. 
Thank you. So the, the point being is that we have got to realize and elevate and understand and anchor ourselves to the God that he is and that he has said he is and he showed him to be. And so here's the challenge. I've given you 955 names. Here's 25 of them. Take a picture of them. Study them. And here's, the, here's your homework assignment in your little journal this week, okay? Here's the homework assignment. It, it is your job and it's your mission to figure out who has God been in your life in the past. Has he been your father of compassion? Has he been your sustainer? Has he been your shepherd? Has he been your healer? And then I want you to start writing out those times that God has been that to you. you, you there, again, there's 955. I only have 25 on the screen. He has been so many things to so much of us, but the size of our God will reshape and reformat the size of the problem that we are dealing with if we will allow that realignment to happen. Number two. Second pain pain management prayer is this. Is authenticity. Authenticity. Where am I? Where am I? It's not only anchoring ourselves to who is God, but it's also really embracing where am I and being real, listen, 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 and even raw with that, with God. He's got big shoulders. He can handle it. If you're upset with him, tell him. If you're disappointed, if you're frustrated, if you're perplexed, tell him. He understands. He would rather hear from you authentically than some plastic answer, some fake answer. Look at verse 13. Because now where he really gets real vulnerable with this. He's just sitting here and anchored himself to praise God for who he is, but then he turns around. Why do you idly look at traitors? That word idly. He used it back in chapter 1. He used it back in chapter 1 in verse 3 when he talked about God being idle then. Do you ever feel like just God isn't moving? The air is still? There's no voice in the air? There's no wind in the air? There's, there's, what's wind in the air? There's no, there's, no, there's no presence of God in your life? It just seems void. It's exactly what Habakkuk was feeling. Why are you idle? Notice the next statement. Why do you remain silent? He's frustrated. He's frustrated. Some of you in this room, you'd like to ask God, God, why do you idly look at my ex while they're succeeding and I'm struggling? Why do you idly let that boss get all the promotions, all the accolades, and I'm over here grinding it out, and I know the truth behind the sausage that's made, and it isn't his recipe or hers? Why, God? Why did I get this disease? Why did I lose my family member so abruptly and I could never even say goodbye? There's a lot of why questions out there. Why do you remain silent, God? But I just want to bring this out because there's so many fill in the blanks idly. Why are you idle, God? Why, why, why are you silent, God? Fill in the blank on your story. 
and bring it to God in prayer. Let him begin to work in it because what he does next in verse 14 through 17 is he begins to break down everything about the Chaldeans that he, he's like, he's upset about. He said that we're like fish in the sea and we're going to be hooked and snared by, and we're going to be drawn in by nets. And he said, we're just vulnerable out here. And the Chaldeans are taking advantage of us and they're even laughing about it. And I don't have time to read it all. It's there for you. But I think it's, it's probably runs parallel to what Asaph was feeling. And here's a, a, the, the text assignment. I gave you Psalm 147 last week. I want to give you Psalm 73 this week. I want you to read it every day. If you have to read it every day, read it every day. Because Asaph had some real questions with God. Jot down your questions. Jot down your answers. Jot down any little insight that you learned from Asaph. As in Psalm 73, he cries out to God and he basically says this, God, Why? Do the bad people win and the good people lose? Why, God, if you're the God of the universe? Why, God, if you're good? Why, God? I mean, it's really what he's asking. This is what he said in in Psalm 73, verse 2 and 4. He said, I had nearly lost confidence. My faith was almost gone because I was jealous of the proud. I saw the things that were going well for the wicked. Why Why do they not suffer pain? Why are they strong and healthy? Why do they get by with it? And he goes on. Again, these are just his journals. Asaph says, when my thoughts were bitter, what did I say? You'll get angry with God. You'll get frustrated with God. My thoughts were bitter and my feelings were hurt. I was stupid as an animal. I was, did not understand you. Did not understand you. God, why? You're not making sense. And then he goes in verse 26. And I, I know I'm skipping over a journey. I don't know how long it took Asaph to write this. I don't know how long was it. Was it a day? Was it, was it a month? Did he go through it for, for a decade? Was it a season of his life that he literally just was in the grind of this, asking God these questions? And then he comes to verse 26. He says, my mind and my body may grow weak. Basically, this may kill me. This may may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. But God is my strength. He is all I ever need. God may put you in that dark space. And he may turn off the volume and turn down the lights. And you may enter into that space, not by choice. But what is he doing? But he's trying to show you that he is your strength. He will sustain you. He will get you through it. Not your fancy abilities, not your gifted and talentedness. No. Number three, anticipation. Antidote, prescription for handling the pain in prayer. That's when you just finally, after you've said it all, you put it all out there. In verse 14 to 17, I really think he's just bearing it out there. He does it in imagery form. And he just comes and he just at the end, chapter 2, verse 1, he just closes it. Walks up, he says, to a watchtower. 
And he begins to look out in anticipation. Listen, anticipation, when you're in pain, anticipation is the worst thing. You take a pill to get rid of pain and you want it done now. If you wait too long after a surgery and you go through something like that, you will, it, it, it's hard for that pill to catch up with the pain. Anticipation when you're in pain is really, really, really hard. There has to be a mindset shift. We have to learn that in this life that we live, as broken and crooked and messed up as it is, that what we're, what we're focusing on is going to be in critical. It's going to be mindset critical. Sorry looks back. Worry looks around. But faith looks up. Somehow, we have to raise our head up. We're going to have to look ahead. Say, God, where are you at? Where are you working? So what he does in verse chapter 2, uh, verse 1, notice what Habakkuk does. He climbs up to the top of a, of a tower. I will take my stand, my watch post, my station myself. He is really drawing on some imagery here. He's talking about a tower, a watch post. He's going to take his stand. It's, it, it's like he's a soldier and he's going into battle. But not. he's not going into battle. He's climbing up to the top of a tower. It even says the tower that looks out to sea and will say to me, what I will answer concerning my complaint. So basically what he does, if you think about the garrison around an ancient city, the most important defense mechanism was not the artillery, was not the army, was actually the walls. How thick your walls, how high your walls. And then what you would do is you would take the highest point or the most visible point of that and you would create a watchtower at the top of that wall. At the top of that wall, the apex, the highest point on that wall, that wall would be the greatest defense uh, measure for, for, for a city. What they would do is then look out as far as the eye could see. They would listen in up from the noise of the busy market street below and life below. They had climbed up, listening, looking, for, anticipating what the enemy may be coming. That's exactly what. Habakkuk does. He climbs up and he is anticipating that God is going to answer his prayer. How many of us pray when we look up, we don't see an answer, so then we just take the bull by the horns. We just do it ourselves instead of waiting, instead of watching. Entering into the watch, prayer, listen to this, prayer gives us the best vantage point to seeing and hearing God. Say that with me. Prayer gives us the best vantage point to seeing and hearing God. We get up, we look out, we anticipate. He's coming. He's going to bring the answer. He's going to do that. That's exactly what he's doing in verse 1. And what does God do in verse 2? And the Lord answered me. I love it. It doesn't always happen bang, bang. Sometimes there's long delays. We don't know how long he was in the watchtower, but he answers him. But he didn't even give him a full answer. I love it. He told him three things. And this is what you do in the watch, okay? When you're in the watch period, some of y'all are been in the watch. Some of y'all gave up on the watch. You're just giving up. If you can get back to the prayer tower, start looking out again, here's what you do in the watch. You write, you wait, and you walk. Real simple. Say it with me. You write, you wait, and you walk. He says all three of these in the next verses. This is what he tells 
uh, Habakkuk. Number one, I, I will write. Verse two, he says, write the vision, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. I think it's interesting he said tablets. See, the preferred, easy, cheaper writing mechanism of that day, or and it's not these tablets, by the way, either. It's, it's, it, it was actually, it was papyrus, paper. Reed grass that grew up along the Nile River would be taken and flat and dried and made into paper. You can still buy papyrus today. Um, so and when, you, when you think about that, that was the most common form of writing something down. He didn't say write it on papyrus. He said write it on tablets. Longer lasting be written etched in stone. It would, be, it would be something that would be on a wooden panel that would not be lost. It would be something that you would want to keep. It would be something that you would value so much that you would want the next generation to get it. That's how valuable, he says, this is. You write down what God is saying to you in those seasons You don't rush through life. You don't just go on about busyness and try to fix it yourself. You get still in the watchtower, away from the noise of the city, away from the noise of the market street, away from the noise of social media. And you get still and you listen and you watch for what God is going to tell you to write down. I... I have been doing something since in high school, and that was journaling. I'm a jotter, not a journaler. So if you get mine ever, if you find them, you'll read them, and it will be, like, very disappointing. Uh, You read some people's journals, and they're like this, oh, my gosh, God said so much. And so mine are literally maybe half pages each day, like there's one day, and then there's another day, okay? So uh, I I just kind of, I listened to these truths since high school. I found a journal, started writing, and I've been doing that ever since. I brought one of my journals. I've kept many of them. I've lost a number of them. But this is April 20th, February, April 20th, April 2000, excuse me, through February 2002. So two years worth in here. You know what's going on in Mike and Lori McDaniel's life at that time? We're praying about coming back and starting Grace Point Church. I have things in this journal that God said to me 17 years ago that are still true of Grace Point Church to this day. Because when God said them to me, I thought the God of the universe is saying this to me. He's giving me a promise. He's giving me a verse. He's spoken to me through godly counsel. He's through the circumstances of my life. I would be foolish not to write it down and to keep it. I challenge you. This is just a sampler, okay? It's a little appetizer, but I pray that you will start a discipline in your life that you will do for the rest of your life in writing down when God is talking to you. Number two, you wait. I will wait. Verse three. By the way, waiting is just the way it's going to (laughs) be. I know we don't like anything to be waited on here. We don't like waiting in line. We don't like waiting in fast food restaurants. Think about that. We don't want to wait in a fast food restaurant. It's not fast enough that we can't even wait in a line to get our fast food. And so it's like we don't have any patience at all, any tolerance for lines or cues or slow drivers or mall walkers. So, I mean, when you think about it, Martha had to wait days. Jeremiah waited 10 days to hear from God. Daniel waited 24 days to hear from God. David was anointed king of Israel and had to wait and run for his life before he ever became the king of Israel. Abraham and Sarah waited 10 chapters of their life, as we talked about last week. 
before God gave them the promise that he'd given them in chapter 11. Waiting is a part of it. Verse 3 says it like this, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. God has a time. By the way, if you haven't noticed, God doesn't operate in our time. Sometimes not even our time zone. He's never late. He's certainly never early. He's always on his time, okay? The appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Now notice this. This is such never truer a statement has been written. It seems slow. It seems slow, God. Why are you taking so long? Wait. That's the command. Just wait. Wait for it. It will come in his time. Waiting is not fun. But waiting is what Christ is, the Lord and the Holy Spirit is trying to build into our life as we go through these seasons. Wait expectantly is what David said when he came before God. He waited expectantly in Psalm chapter 5, verse 3. What's a person to do whenever they're in the middle of this in-between decision kind of making time? What's a person to do whenever they're trying to, to, to know what the next step is? They only get a piece of the puzzle from God, but they don't know what next looks like. What is a person to do? You're supposed to keep doing what you did last. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. Whatever way He puts you on, you stay on that way. You hate your job. You hate your home. You hate your life. You hate your story. You, you want to see God do work in your story, okay? Well, guess what? Get on His way and stay on that way until He moves you off that way. Do the last thing that he called you to do. Sometimes you won't get the next thing until you do the last thing. That's why in the IDP that we do around Grace Point Church, if you don't know what that is, come see me. We ask you, what's the last thing God asked you to do? And if you haven't done that, don't worry about the next thing until you go back and you do the last thing. While you wait, continue doing the last thing, Henry Blackaby said, that God clearly told you to do. By waiting, you shift the responsibility of the outcome to God, where it belongs. Here's a phrase that's hard to swallow. Romans 8, 25, wait with patience. You're going to wait, but how you're going to wait, that's up to you. Wait with patience. For, two and a, for a year and a half, we have been waiting and praying around Grace Point Church for our next student pastor. We have a great team. We have Ann and we have Kevin and we have Ellie and we have Taylor. We have a great team and they're leading as well. But we've been praying since Wade stepped into the spiritual formation role. Guess what? We've been waiting. We've been praying. People have been asking. We're waiting and we're praying. And we've, had the, we've seen hundred, hundreds of resumes. We're waiting and we're praying. I don't know when he's going to come. I don't know when they're going to come. But we're going to keep waiting and praying. Scripture says those who wait on the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. So let us learn to wait with patience. Finally, and I hope we understand what we do in the watch is what maybe some of y'all need to do right now is that I will walk. It's not only writing, it's waiting, but it's also walking. Walking where? I don't know where to go. Well, you're walking what you know. You're walking the last thing that God told you to do. You stay there, you, you, keep, you keep on, and you stay and you keep being faithful to where you are. This is the most, listen to this, the most important verse that is in the entire book of Habakkuk is the verse that we're about to read. 
this verse that we're about to read is so important that Romans, Paul uses it in Romans chapter 1 as the thesis for the entire book of the book of Romans. That's how significant it is. Not only that, but you go over to Galatians, you find it, he quotes it again in Galatians. You go over to Hebrews, it's quoted in Hebrews. So it is one of the more popular quoted verses in the New Testament that is written in the Old Testament. The book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking here about the Chaldeans again. They're upright within him. But, this is what God answered him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Not his answers, not his equations, not his spreadsheets, not his, all his answered questions, all figured all out. But the righteous person will walk into the unknown in faith. So what you do is you wait, you write down what God's telling you, and you just start walking. Where is he leading you? And he's going to lead you into places, maybe it's dark rooms, maybe dark seasons, maybe, maybe beautiful mountaintops and vistas. But when he leads you, you go. And you just take that next step and believe that he's going to be there for the next step of obedience that you take with him. Think about it when Jesus, Jesus went to the cross. And there was a time in Jesus' story, I told you this last week, there was a time even in Jesus' story when just God the Father just didn't make sense to God the Son. And it was whenever God was hanging on that cross, and he was hanging on that cross, and all the weight of all the world, of all the sin, of all the man, mankind that ever walked this earth, that ever breathed this earth, your grandchildren's grand, grandchildren and your great, 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 all the sins of all the world. And he hung on the cross. And what was the one statement that he cried out in Arabic, his mother tongue? He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't even make sense to his own son. Because in that moment, every talk about a data dump, it was all dumped on the soul of the son of God at that point. But because he continued in faith, we're called to continue to walk in faith. Would you bow your heads with me? Where are you at right now? In the season of your life, are you on the watchtower looking out, anticipating? Or have you climbed down from the watchtower, gone back into the busy market street, back into the noise of the world, and you have now filled up your calendar so much so that you don't even have bandwidth, space, time to sit still and wait and write and walk in faith. Don't let Satan and the busyness of this world rob you of what God wants to do in you. We're going to pray, and at that point, we're going to have prayer partners around the room. Feel free to go to any of them. You want somebody to pray with you? You want to be prayed for? This is your time. And I'm going to ask that some of them get up and move right now. Just kind of get ready, get in position for our prayer time. This is a time where we are going to meet with the Father and it's a time for you to respond so it's definitely not a time to rush out. It's a time to be still. Be still. You might want to grab, come grab a prayer journal. 
Father God, you know our hearts. You know where we're at. Don't let us run and hide. Don't let us become so busy that we miss you, so so consumed with what is next that we miss your next step of obedience in our life. Thank you, God, for taking us through the seasons of life that require us to get still, to write, to wait, and then to step out in a walk of obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? This is your time.